money. It pervades every single aspect of our lives. It influences relationships, directs our career choices, impacts our use of time, where we live, and why we get up in the morning. It causes worry, creates artificial feelings of security and insecurity, drives wedges between families and business partners, and so much more. Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. And with this being the week when taxes are due here in the U.S., we thought it made sense to chat about the realities of money. Today's guest is Gordon Byrne, who seems to have Midas touch as an athlete, coach, and in the area of finances. He is a former private equity partner with experience working across both Europe and Asia. These days, his primary focus is his own investments, as well as acting as a fiduciary for a small family office based in Wyoming. He lives in Boulder, Colorado with his wife and three kids and has some great insights for all of us today on everything from raising your kids with the concepts of money to how coaches can price their their services appropriately to the way that we approach taxes and so much more. If you're not already one of the thousands of people tapping into our Catalyst Tips and Tricks that comes out every Tuesday, there's a link in the description to access it. It's a free, basically a 60-second highlight of five tips, tricks, and turbo boosts that we've discovered to improve our personal and professional lives. To tap into it, it's it's real quick. Just click on the link, add your email, you're good to go. And there is a one-click unsubscribe if you find it's really not fitting what you're looking for. As always, if you have any questions about bringing best-in-class coaching to your organization, pursuing your own certification as a coach, or anything else coaching-related, please reach out. Results at Catalyst Coaching institute.com and we can set up a time to connect anytime you'd like now it's time to be a catalyst with gordo burn on the latest episode of the catalyst health wellness and performance coaching podcast out of the gate do you have a few cornerstones when we're talking about money do you have a few cornerstones that you really like to lean on that just get us started give our, our listeners some stakes in the ground for their finances as they're thinking through this on a more broad basis yeah um desire and um, our reference set and time. So let's chat a little bit about about those. One of the things, I I lived in London and Hong Kong and the South Island of New Zealand, and I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. So all very different places. And I'm sitting in Boulder, Colorado, for range, one of the fittest places in the world as well. And each place had a big impact on what I wanted, what I desired. So I think our environment exerts uh, a tremendous influence on us financially that we need to be aware of. Most of us don't notice it. It's happening behind the scenes Mm. unconsciously. But if we can surface that and... And, and realize how our environment is impacting us, I think we can help shape our spending and shape our desires. So that's a big, big driver in family finances. So so let's sit on that one for a second. Um, are you saying I need to tune into, for example, we always talk about the five people you spend the most time with influences your fitness, your eating habits, your finances, your vacation strategies, you're talking about beyond that. It's not just the five people, it's the community, it's the setting, it's the 
Am I, am I hearing that right? What else is involved with that? Yeah. So let's, let's touch on those, those, those five people, because this is related. So you got the environment and then you've also got, who am I trying to impress? Mm. Who, who, who's my reference set? You know, the, that is a big one. And I think a lot of us, I mean, I've run into people and it's a, it's a dead parent. So they're living their, mm. their life based for trying to impress somebody and they, they, they're never going to be able to achieve that goal because the person's gone or the person's changed. So we're all highly influenced by who our parents were when we were children, how we were brought up, that childhood, that early teenage environment, really influenced by it. That environment's gone. Those people are gone. Our parents are not the people we remember. They've moved on. They've changed just like we have, but it still continues to influence us. Now, to make these unconscious influences part of our awareness, part of our current awareness is how we can shape our desires and our desires are going to influence our spending and our aspirations. And they're also our ability, if if we you know, if life equips us with a set of desires that are really hard to achieve, we're going to strive our whole life, but we might have a sensation and a feeling that we're not really getting anywhere. So our finances are not going to be satisfying our personal needs, even if we're a great provider for our families, for ourselves, for the future. So the, so I think this is something that a lot of folks, you know, they'll come into me, they'll say, hey, I, I have these financial goals. But they've never stopped to consider where the goal came from. Mm, and, and, mm. and so, you know, normally the advisor comes in and they're sort of like, okay, well, these are your goals. This is your income. We're going to put together a plan for you to achieve your goals. But nobody steps above it and says, well, where did the goal come from? What, and, and I mean, write this down and, and where do I think I'm going to get to if I achieve my goal? Mm, you know, where am I, where, where am I trying to get to? Okay, so that brings me to the third point, which is money is most is, is best viewed as a function of time. So in the present, what we're talking about is money allows me to allocate my time. So by saving money, by investing wisely, by having different income streams of money, I have, I become free to allocate my time and control my own schedule. There's value, a lot of value in that. The value is not in the money itself. The value is in the time that's implied by the money. Now, another thing with financial planning, we need to factor in time, time horizon. So we have a, let, let's just take a hypothetical person. They're in their mid-30s. They've got a 30-year mortgage at a great interest rate right now. That's a great position. Now, that position, if you can just sit and live your life in the wherever you happen to be, if you're in the front range, if you can just do that for 15 years and not change your position, it's going to go from a good position to a great position to an outstanding position. It's really hard to do. Because we want to tinker, we want we want to feel like we're getting results right now. Compounding the influence of time on all our lives doesn't seem real 
until we get much older. So that's something I would say for people that are, um, you know, particularly 20s, 30s, relatively young, is you've got to give time the ability to work in your favor. So, okay, we had Morgan Housel on. Uh, one of the lasting statements he made was don't move the goalposts. And you're referencing that too. And it sounds to me, tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me like, the way you're setting that up of if you can maintain that for 15 years, you're going to be in a good place makes me think that most of your clients, many of the people you cross paths with, it just doesn't happen. So what are some of the things that keep that from happening? Is it, is it the, that reference point of, well, my friends have moved, my friends have done this vacation, my friends are buying these new cars. Is that the primary driver? Is it job change like what what falls into that i see you smiling nobody can see it except for me but i know we have i know you got something spinning in that head there my friend okay so easiest ways first off change your reference set so my who am i trying to impress i'm trying to impress my 10 year old son okay and that's my reference set i so what does that do that gives me a very powerful incentive to focus on my children, which I believe is something that can make you very happy for a very long time when they grow up and leave. Uh, and if you flip it, ignoring your children to make money, it's a major source of regret with wealthy, older folks I run into. So it's, it's double-sided. So it hedges your future, and it also gives you a lot of satisfaction in the, in the present. So that's, that's one thing. Change your reference set. It's easy. The other thing you can do is trim your media filter. So if you, if, and, and the easiest way to do that is just pick one thing, one site, one platform that you think maybe there's a little too much drama there. It's not good for me. And just <laughs> drop it for 30 days. If you can break it for 30 days, you might be able to break it forever. So I wanted to get myself off of Facebook, there was a little too much drama in my feed. And you can curate your feed, or you can just say, hey, I'm going to take a month off and see what happens. I took a month off. My my life, way less drama, way better. I was like, you know, I should probably just nuke it. So I, I nuked it. I'm out. So that was a big win about a year and a half ago. But each of us has something. There's like one thing. And if you just make a habit of, you know, one thing a year, you're going to live a long time, 10 years, you've really, you really trimmed things down. And this comes back to desire, drama, um, you know, emotional control, all these different things. You can just trim it gradually. That, that's kind of the way to, way to do it. Now, back to your point about strategy. Here's a, here's a simple technique that anybody can apply. You don't need to be running an investment firm to do this. You have an investment committee. And I would say, if it's somebody, somebody in the, say you're, if one of your parents is alive, they're a good person to sit on your investment committee because they know you well, they know the family well. And then you need somebody from outside your life, outside your employer, outside your family. So now we're talking about three individuals. Okay, so I've got an investment committee. I got an investment committee in my firm, but I also have an investment committee in my life. Now, I'm fortunate it can, it's, it's all just the same people. Now, within that investment committee, 
Anything other than a rebalanced decision needs a meeting. So if, mm-hmm. if I'm seeking to change strategy, I got I I I have a discipline where I sit and I explain why I'm changing strategy. Okay. So it it, it slows me down. I think what gets us into trouble is the ability to make take action quickly. If we can slow ourselves down, we'll make less mistakes. Mm-hmm. Because every time we change a position, we change our strategy, we give the opportunity for error to come into the process, and we can interrupt compounding, which is really what's going to be making a difference over these long time horizons for most families. Now, here's an interesting thing. How are you going to run that investment committee? With key decisions, the decisions with the ability for something to go wrong and cost me money, the most conservative view rules. Mm. So it's it's not in it's not unanimous. It's we don't we're not putting things to a vote. But if I can't convince everybody, we'll just go with whatever the most conservative view is, because ultimately staying invested. And not making mistakes is much more powerful than kind of tweaking here and there and trying to make these little strategy changes. So that's so when is the time? So that kind of begs the question. Well, when is the time for a family to make a big change in strategy? And, and I think it's more important to be thinking about when am I going to review strategy? So big life events are worth reviewing strategy. Um, Becoming unemployed, having children, generational transfers, not necessarily when the, the elders die, but at some point they're going to retire. We're going to also have the kids, young adults coming into the workforce. We're going to have these generational transfers happening within the family. So the spreadsheet that I have is I'm tracking, if I'm working with a family, I'm tracking the age of every single family member when they're going to come into their working life, when they're likely to come out of their working life. And that gives us a view of the time horizon within the family. Those will be key review periods. And then we're not really seeking market timing, but we do look at things like debt position. Um, You know, in the U.S., we have these 30-year fixed rate notes, uh, mortgages, which can be very useful uh, forms of finance because it's a one-way option. You can always just repay it. Um, the borrower and the government's taking the interest rate risk, so it can it can be a great deal uh, for families, uh, particularly when it's uh, you know when the rates have been at these historically low levels and still just, remain low. Just for reference point, compounding interest—it's been called the eighth wonder of the world. Can you walk through the basics of that for our listeners who may say, well, I've heard that term, but I don't really understand it because that, from what I understand, it sounds like from what you're saying, that is the train you've got to get on. Yeah, I I really think it is. It's so I'll just explain a little game that I play uh, within my family. I call it the allowance game and my kids get paid a dollar every Monday for how old they are. So my nine-year-old gets nine bucks every Monday. 
for how old for, for each year. And we, we kick that off in kindergarten. And when they're in kindergarten, they don't really care. They kind of like the idea of getting money. <laughs> and then, but not everybody, my son, he didn't care for two years. Now he cares a lot. He's 10. Um, and the idea is, you know, when I was a kid, we had bank accounts that paid interest and that's not around anymore. And I wanted to create that emotional attachment to compounding within my children like my father did for me with a savings account at the bank. But, you, you know, you, you won't get that feeling now because okay. you're getting half zero, 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 one. So I pay 10% um, annual for on this allowance account. And it gives us the ability to see how these little deposits over time really add up. All the kids are in the thousands now on their accounts just from this little deposit every Monday. And we have, just like I talked about with myself, we have an investment committee, which is, you know, one sibling plus me. And if they want to spend money out of the allowance account, we need to talk about it. So it gives us a, a way to have a dialogue about purchases. And they also have the ability to put earned income in and earn 10%. And at first, they didn't really understand that. They rather have their little bag of coins and, and paper bills. But but as they got older and they saw this compounding work, they're like, "Hey, can I can I invest this money with you and, and earn? <laughs> but I, I need to be able to get it back." And right, so right. we're like, "Yeah, sure. You, if, if your money is your money, not only are you going to get back the money, but you're going to get you're going to get your investment income that you earned on it back too." And so it's great. So I've given them this emotional game that they play where they actually feel the pain of their spending. And I think this is something that we can offer ourselves and we can offer our children, because a lot of times if we're in an affluent household, you're always just paying out and the kids don't actually get any feeling mm -hmm. with their spending. Yeah, they, They're just spending mom and dad's money. And this, this rolls into adults Adults that are, are, are getting money that's coming downstream from the family, from the elders, and they, they don't feel that spending. And then you get all the emotional stuff because the elders are, or a trust is paying out money. And then, it, you know, it's not earned. And, you know, whose money is it really? You know, all that kind of stuff. So we want to build good habits really from as soon as possible uh, with, the, with the kids with regards to that compounding. And for people, if you can teach compounding to a kid, you're also teaching yourself at the same time. So that's why I'm explaining the game. You got a nephew, you got a grandkid. If you, this is a small amount of money with a big return. I, th I did the calculation and I, I think the whole, the whole cost from kindergarten to grade 12 was probably 13,000 bucks or so. And, and if you, and that's really setting somebody up for success, having that emotional attachment to not spending right. and feeling the benefit of compounding, having lived it through their whole childhood. And, and we're not, I'm not providing like monthly statements or anything to them. I just, you know, every, every so often they're kind of like, hey, how much money I got in my account? And, and I'm like, all right, well, let's go have a look. And it's like every three to six months. And by the way, if you have Morgan on your show, he's probably told you, don't look at your portfolio very much. 
You know, he probably would have given you that advice. I'm teaching that to my kids too. It's not about like what's going on every day here. It's heading the right direction over time and living your life. That's what it's about. And and just trying to, so a lot of my uh, philosophy of money, you can, you can get to it with all these simple games. Now, older kids, same thing. Now we're playing the 529 game, right? So at some point in high school, when they were all young, in my high earning years, I, I, I leaned into my 529 accounts, my college accounts here in Colorado. You get a state to that dollar used to uh, dollar for dollar state tax deduction made a lot of sense for me to switch some of my non-retirement investments into the 529 account for the kids. And this was done. Now we're talking, say, 10 years ago. So there's a lot of gains there. Now, that money is, is separate from how I'm running my life. At some point, we're going to need to have a discussion as a family with now a young adult, which is really, you want to spend this money? I, uh, because we're, we're talking a down payment on a house just about for your education. It's a lot more real to somebody than borrowing money. Mm. You know, the, the I, I think young people get themselves into trouble early by overborrowing and because it doesn't feel real to them. Now, if they've been playing this allowance game since they were in kindergarten, and now we're talking about, well, geez, we've got a couple hundred thousand bucks in a college account somewhere five to eight years from now. This is real. This will be real money to them. It's much bigger than their allowance pool. So the 529 accounts are very flexible and you can so within it with a family with like grandkids and nephews and all this different stuff you've got the ability to allocate this money so if, if i have a kid that gets a scholarship my intention would be well let's try and figure out how to roll this to some grandkid or something in the future and let's 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 give this kid some capital to reward them for paying for their own education um within the family system. So you can, so these simple accounts are all ability to help train, teach uh, young adults. Now, I touched a little bit about borrowing in young people. Let's talk a bit about financial legacies because it, it kind of leads into that. I, I think the best thing my parents ever did for me was get me out of college debt-free. So they, I, I, they didn't really get involved with what I studied, um, but they did get involved as a family of both my parents' generation and my grandfather. They helped me get out debt-free, and that enabled me to start build that early habit of savings. And it didn't, it, re, it didn't feel like much when I started, but I just had this habit of saving. I didn't have a habit of investment until much later, although I was working in private equity. I had a very conservative, I, I just, you know, back then, just basically a checking account savings type investments. I didn't, I wasn't involved in the stock market. And I, I graduated in 1990. But I think that, which would have been a good time to go into the stock market, sure. but it didn't really make a difference. What made a difference was that early habit of savings and being able to start saving in my early 20s. Okay, but let's pause there for a second, because 
and I was in similar situation. I had to pay for grad school. My folks got me through undergrad. Um, but what about the person listening out the, either a parent or a student saying, we don't have that money. Like what, what's our kids supposed to do? Or the kids saying, well, my folks, they just, they're not in a position. They can help me like that. How in the world am I supposed to graduate as close to debt free as possible? What, what do you say to that person? Well, you got a big incentive to work and you have a big incentive to get out of there. And you also won't, you know, something that's very unique about the U.S. is not looking at the cost benefit analysis of the cost of your education. Yes. We all assume that a big name college is worth it, regardless of the degree program we're following. So I, I went to a college called McGill University up in Montreal. And the total cost of a joint honors education in finance and economics was adjusting for inflation is less than what it cost me to put one kid through preschool, three-year preschool. So if you're in a, if you, so in, in, what am I saying with that? In state is your default option. Absolutely. I think I, 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 unless you're a genius and can get into MIT or Caltech or, or sort of one of these technical schools where you really track into something special, I think you really need to look very closely at the cost-benefit analysis of the education track you're going. Is it going to pay for itself? Because all the stuff around us and the easy money that's provided by our, our government system is inflating the cost to that student, that, that, that family, that student has been told for decades that college is worth it. College is not worth it for a lot of people. If you're going to borrow a bunch of money, it's going to take you five years, say, to get out of there, and you, you end up with a degree where you're not going to get paid, not worth it. So you, you have to look hard at that decision. And if you just want a simple template for that, there's an article on my website called A Million Dollars of Education. And that, that kind of lays out for that family, they can they can have a look at how am I going to go about you know what's the total cost here, what's the foregone uh, you know work because you, you you could be working. Is there a way to get this same education more cheaply to your community college? Switch into yep. the in-state degree program. Yep. So you so you get the degree, but you you've got you've done it more cheaply. You can, you can get the same result for a lot less capital, and debt isn't free. I, you know, it, it, there's in, in these environments, particularly, you know, there's a, there's a lot more uh, geopolitical risk right now. But if we, if we scroll back before the pandemic, there's, I was getting a feeling that everybody was starting to act like debt was free again. Mm. In, in 2006, 2007, before that, that big recession, everything was way out of hand, and, and nobody really took the cost of debt into consideration. And one of the impacts over all of us for the last, say, decade of this low interest rate policy is we haven't felt the cost of debt. So debt service, you know, these really low interest rates, you don't understand the true cost of debt until somebody asks you in a down market to repay them. That's when you're going to feel that true cost of debt. That's also why fixed rate long-term borrowing is great because you're locked in. All you got to do is make your payment. Nobody's going to have a margin call on you. 
yeah, you just meet you just meet your obligations. And if we got a little bit of a dip, and even if it, the dip extends beyond a year, you're okay. You just ride it out. You know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let, let's come back to this idea. And you've, you've kind of talked around this quite a bit already, but continue down this path of acting on your plan instead of your emotion. You talked about the investment committee. You talked about, you know, teaching kids to do this. How, how do you, how do those two differ, the emotions versus plan, and how can people put that into practice in addition to the investment committee concept? Okay. The ease, my wife does this really well. So you, you have all these emotions, and you want to spend and buy stuff, okay? Just buy little things. You'll get the same bang for your buck. It's, it's the... If, if you want to buy a knickknack, buy an experience. So it's a lot easier to reroute that emotion than it is to try and transcend, transcend it. Spend all this energy saying, I can't spend money. I can't do this. No, just do less. You know, same deal in your portfolio. You, you, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll say to somebody if, if they're like, wow, I want to make this really risky investment. I'm like, well, okay. So we just take an allocation of your financial life, and that's your high-risk allocation. And if it goes to zero, you don't care. And then take a piece of that allocation and do your high-risk thing on a no-recourse basis. If it works out, you'll feel happy. It's not going to mess up your future plan. And you just keep doing what you're doing. Now, the flip side of that is these little investments, these high-risk investments and stuff, they ultimately if you talk to people that are financially successful, those things aren't going to be what makes the difference. The difference is going to come from a, a, a habit of savings. It's going to come from a great life partner. Who you marry is a big financial decision, particularly <laughs> when you have kids with them. Kids are a big financial decision. And it's huge, too. How did that person grow up? What was their environment? You know, my wife grew up in a very humble environment. So we we have a we have, we have a marriage where we're on the same page when it comes to spending uh, and that. The other thing is, you know, what did I study in school? We talked about college. You know, I, I happened to study finance, and that was a great degree at the time when I got out of college. So, you know, I've got a nephew. He's doing biomechanical engineering. So he, he's, he's getting a degree where he knows there's going to be demand for his services. And I think that's important too. You know, what, what, we, what we choose to study may track us into something. We'll certainly have the option to be in that uh, field. So these, these decisions don't really come down to investments. Now with spending. That's interesting. Spending decisions. I think it's, you know, if you can just have the discipline to have a diary and write down why you're doing it and what you expect to have happen. So I have a, I have a book, I have sort of a bound book, not spiral bound. It's like, you know, one of those hard bound ones, like a hardcover. And before I make any decision, I just, I just make a few notes to myself. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What do I expect to have happen? And I think that is, Important because if you do have good judgment, if you know yourself over your investing career, it, it'll 
it'll show. It'll show in the quality of your capacity to make good long-term judgments. You're, you're also going to learn where your blind spots are, where you keep fooling yourself over and over and over again. They tend to repeat. And you can build, then you can build your team with somebody that's good in that okay, area. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they can advise you and you'd be like, oh, hang on a sec. I remember I didn't get this right. Maybe I'll ask my friend Susan, who, who does get this right, and see what she has to say for you. And that again, that'll that'll slow you down. Right. right. That's um, good. That's really good. That, that's good for any aspect of life. Journaling is, is a huge thing. All right. So taxes are due this week. Perfect time. You're, you don't know the listener's specific situation. So is there any general stuff that maybe sits outside the the typical advice that people should take into account? Yeah. Sole proprietors, entrepreneurs. I, I, I need you to remember tax deductible isn't free. So what do I mean by that? I have seen some wacky, wacky choices because <laughs> there was a tax deduction offered. You know, mid nineties, there was, you know, delivery companies in India. When I, when I worked in Hong Kong, they're like building wind farms on the other side of the country, just for a tax deduction. They're getting away from their core competency. So tax deductible is not free. Focus on the free cash flow of your decisions. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of folks that will benefit from that. A, a, a stronger focus on free cash flow. And I think that same, so that, that lesson with debt, it also applies to tax deductibility. I mean, borrowing money for a tax deduction for something you don't really need to run your life, it's going to bite you in the butt sooner or later. You're better off just not doing it, staying focused on your, on what you do, your, whatever your core competency is, whatever, however you're making your cash flow, just stay focused on that. That That's probably the, the biggest one. The other thing is over time, young people particularly, I would recommend you look at your tax bill as a percentage of your net worth. And, and so when I was, when, when I was starting out, uh, in finance, um, my tax bill represented my annual tax bill was like 90% of my net worth. And it'll give you an incentive. It'll let you know if you're kind of heading the right direction when, if you're comparing the two. And likewise, if you're successful in life, you're financially successful, you build up this portfolio of assets. One of the things you'll you'll eventually get to, and you'll see, is that the government's take, the taxes as a percentage of your net worth, is at the point where the government can't impact your life, really. So tax policy can impact us as a community, but in terms of your personal portfolio, your family portfolio, you've saved your way out of the government's ability to kind of mess with your financial life. At that point, again, don't spend a lot of emotional energy worrying about your taxes. It's just the cost of doing business. Um, you can distract yourself from living your life if you get too wrapped up in these. I see very emotional discussions in the top 2% by wealth of our society about tax policy. And I get it. You know, you, you want to keep what you feel is your money. 
but what you're getting emotional over has no bearing on your financial life. It's just at this point, your tax bill is a percentage of your net worth. I mean, the, the people that complain the most, they're paying a tenth of a percent of their balance sheet each year. I mean, I, I think Warren Buffett is has a very wise approach to it. You know, pay the taxes and just do it. It doesn't matter to the guy. He's good. And, you know, he's focused on living his life making more investments, doing what, what he wants to do. I think the smart people understand that. And that is achievable for everybody. You don't you don't have to be a, a millionaire or a billionaire. All you have to be is a saver and let time do the work for you. And, you, and the ability for the government to get involved decreases each year. And the fact that it's going down is going to make you feel better at tax time. That that is such a valuable point. I I have struggled with that emotional angst towards tax. I'm same age as you are. Um, emotional angst for my majority of my adult life, and just in the last few years, I've started looking around and saying, "This bike path is the great." Like I could not build a bike path like this for the amount that I pay in taxes, and yet I have free access to it anytime I want, or this trail, or this you know spot to go sit by the lake or, or whatever and just for me opening my eyes to yeah there's some stupid stuff that taxes pay for in everybody's opinion they have a different thought along those lines but doggone it we live in a pretty cool society where there is a lot of good stuff being done so great great point um man so many questions we're not gonna get through everything let's talk mortgage debt a little bit uh because and, and you and I might have different feelings on this. I, I know there's not a right answer. There's a right answer on the spreadsheet. There's another answer that might help you sleep better. There's another answer that's better. So as far as your opinion on mortgage debt, what what what, what do you recommend to, to people that come to you and say, Gordo, I, I just, I can't decide. Should I try to pay off my house sooner? Should I not? Is this like, you know, free money at 3% and should I just write it out? Like what, what is your guidance when somebody comes to you with that, that struggle? Okay. Well, okay. Let, let's talk a bit about, before we get into the type of debt, debt in okay. big picture. Perfect. So, um, okay. There's a couple things. Debt is useful, but you really got to watch it. And what do you got to watch? You got to watch your high cost debt, your credit card debt. You don't want any of that. It'll crush you. The other thing you got to watch is debts that are hidden, hidden debts. And a, and a, and a hidden debt might be a, a guarantee or a promise to pay. So it might not feel real, but you, you have the ability or you give a bank the ability to, for a recourse against you. So that's either guaranteeing the debt of a company or another individual. Those can be very, very inconvenient. So I would, uh, you don't want to touch any of that. I think you're better off, if anybody's asking you to do a uh, guarantee, you're better off at looking at an equity investment. Um, you got to look at it like you're, and, and you need to be compensated like you're making an equity investment so that so that money could go to zero. And I think that's a much better way. And that's and the result of that is you're probably going to say, forget it. You're not going to bother with it. And, and that's the best decision for almost everybody. Now, types of debt. 
non-recourse debt, borrowing inside a company that you own where it can't come back to you. That's different. You're insulated from some of that downside. All you can, all you can lose is the your investment in the company. So you can be much more aggressive with the leverage structure, with the borrowing structure, when it when it can't come back to you, when it's sitting in a company. Likewise, if you have a business where so if you have a business where you're managing other people's money and you're getting paid a fee on the money and a share of the gains on that money, it can make sense to be very aggressive with debt um, on, a, on a basis within, within that business and then on behalf of other people's money. So things that make sense for corporations and professional investors can be a disaster for individuals. Mm. So you can hear about these financial mm. techniques Good. out in the world that are rational and make a lot of sense for the people using them. But if you try and bring those into your family, you're going to get crushed eventually. Mm, and, you know, point. It's going to take a while yeah, and it's yeah. usually going to hit at a really inconvenient time because it's going to be a recession. Maybe you're unemployed on top of it. And then you got other debts that are coming due. So in your personal life, in your family's life, you got to be much more conservative with debt than in your corporate life your working life. That, that, that's just a philosophical. Okay, good. Uh, Very point. good. Now, let's come to mortgage debt now. Very cheap historically. Um, and, and some of the rates that I've seen people able to lock in over the last five years, absolutely fabulous. And then all it takes is, you know, one year. I, I think here in Boulder, our property market went up 35% in one year. So anybody that borrowed two years ago has paid their entire cost of the mortgage just with one year's capital appreciation. So it's really attractive. Here's the deal. Debt's not free. So if you're using that fixed rate debt to buy an asset that you need, so say housing, it can make sense. for And, and who's it make sense for? Well, you know, if you're really young and you want the ability to move around, for your career to make money, to learn, to build your assets and build your experience, even though it's a good good deal, it might not make sense to lock yourself into a housing market. You know, as a young man, I moved all over the world. So uh, educated in Montreal, Canada, first finance job, London, United Kingdom, promoted out to Hong Kong in Asia, first place I ever bought a house, New Zealand. So if I've been buying real estate in all these places, I'm exposing myself to risk. And I'm also, I might miss the option to get promoted to a great opportunity because I've locked myself into a market. Now, a lot of young people listening to this won't remember. But in that last major downturn, if you're thinking 2009, 2010, a lot of people were underwater um, in their housing market. Yep. And they get unemployed. It, it's a real risk to get yourself caught in a in, in a housing market. So you know, I, I the first place I bought, I didn't buy a place until it was really cheap, and I was confident that I could hold it no matter what happened in my life, and I didn't borrow against it. So it was just bought. It didn't create any liability, and if if it didn't work out, fine. And and you want to be looking at that. You know, could I rent this out? 
in any market and cover my mortgage payment if I had to move. Because you don't want to get yourself locked in when you're young. Now, you got kids. You know, you got the ability to buy into a great public school district. You know, here in Boulder Valley School District, it's a great, it's a great um, district for us. I got three kids. Buying into this market makes a lot of sense for reasons other than just the financial reasons. So that's young families. It can make a it can make a lot of sense to buy in when it when it uh, when the interest rates are this low. So another thing to look at. So you're, you're thinking maybe I'm going to buy. So you got to look at your total cost of ownership. What's my total cost of ownership for this investment? So you just you lay it all out. You know your your, your maintenance, your insurance, your taxes, your mortgage. Compare all that. Look at your cost of rental. Um, and just compare the two. And they're they're always kind of moving, uh, relatively speaking. Now, once you buy in, you, your, 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 your mortgage payment is largely locked in because it's a function of the interest sure. rate. Yeah. Your taxes and insurance will move on you, but you, you're, you're locked in. So it's, it is a form of hedging because you know what that payment's going to be. Whereas if you're a renter, you got the ability to leave. But your landlord over time has the ability to double or triple your rent. Sure. And, and so that, that's where it can, that's also an, another trade off that people can consider. But I think most people, if you just look at current cost to own the thing, cost to rent, and kind of compare the two, you'll get a good feel for you know, which way it's swinging. And as far as trying to pay it off, so let's say you're, I don't know, 15 years in. You've got some extra money and you're trying to decide, do I pay down that mortgage or do I invest it a little bit more? Again, I know there's not a right answer. There are too many variables, but well, what are some depends, of the thought processes? Yeah, so, so I think many people have an emotional fear of debt. I've run into some very pure, prudent people. Okay. I see you pointing <laughs> at yourself. So you're going to get a big emotional return. From being debt free. Yes, absolutely. Okay? So a couple of years ago, I paid my mortgage off. I did the same thing. I liked being debt free. Yep. What I also wanted to do was I wanted to free up debt capacity for the future. Um, and and I wanted I liked the idea of of being in a position where I could borrow if the situation looked really attractive to me. So that was so, and so I was like, you know what? It doesn't really make financial sense to pay this low rate mortgage off, but I don't really need it. I might need it later. I don't know. And so I just, I paid it off. That was my choice. But normally my advice when it comes to paying down debt, selling an investment, these types of decisions where the outcome's not really clear, but somebody has this emotional need to do it. I say, just do half. So, you know, that way you're going to win either way. Yeah. Pay half the mortgage off, sell half your Apple shares if that's what you want to do, if you're worried. Uh, you know, just do half the position. Uh, if, you know, uh, same deal with uh, foreign exchange. When's the, when's the right time to convert foreign exchange? I have no idea. Maybe we'll sell it. Maybe we'll do like some sort of weighted cost averaging. You know, if somebody has a, a Canadian dollar position will move out of it gradually over time, or we're just going to say, Hey, we got no idea. We'll just do half now. 
Yeah. And we'll look at it in a year's time. Kind of dollar cost averaging. Um, you, you've got, I, I love the story. The difference between your two grandfathers uh, is a popular <laughs> blog post that you've got. Living rich versus living well. Can you set the stage for us a little bit? Help us to understand the difference between those two of living rich and living well. Well, yeah, it's so I got some interesting people in my family tree. My, my, <laughs> Don't we all? My great grandfather. So this, this is going way back. So this is back when British Columbia was all covered in trees. And his business was a, a lumber business, a forestry business processing lumber. So he was a lumber magnate. So, and, and ultimately his business turned into one of these huge Canadian corporations that's still around today. Very wealthy guy. Um, cover of U.S. Fortune magazine, big cigar in his mouth. I, I remember the picture when I was a kid growing up. It's like, you know, you, that, you had, I, I never really, I never met him. Um, but obviously kind of your classic industrialist. I mean, he looked the part, he was the part. Um, now very successful, but was he successful for the family? Mm. So, I, you know, he's, he's on the cover of the magazine and, you know, we'd say any family would want to have somebody like that, I guess. Right. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's a big shot, but none of that money made it more than two generations. So this financial success of this individual, this highly successful individual, was not, did not become part of our family culture. The money was there. It was just spent down over time. And here we are. Uh, but here's an interesting thing. His grandkids, the, the, the family was really into camping. And this, is, this made it. So the fact that they all like to go camping together, I, my first job was as a camp counselor. It it all it, that kind of flowed through, and so I find it interesting that the habit that got through was not making money. The habit that got through was an inexpensive pastime that the family did together, mm. and so that's what endured over a hundred years. Money's gone. Um, on the on the um, another part of the family. I think my great grandmother might have been the youngest of eight or the youngest of 10. Now we're talking the great, great level that her parents, very wealthy out of Ottawa, capital, federal capital, Canada. Um, the, the matriarch, patriarch of that line, they die. There's a bunch of money around. Kids all fight for years and years and years. Everybody mm. dies and except for the youngest. Money came into her um, and eventually went to my grandma. A little bit of that money will kind of ultimately go to me. Um, I mean, it's the equivalent of a month and a half spending for my family. It's a, it's a little bit, but a, a little bit of that money got through. The lesson there is if you don't create your estate plan with intent, you can set off a chain of reaction that makes everybody miserable for a long time. Mm, mm. Related to that, 
money and assets, both stories, money and assets have unintended consequences for your adult children. I grew up with all this. I was in a field where you can make a lot of money, private equity, finance. I also wasn't all that into my own spending. It wasn't making me happy. So I realized that these assets and all this money that was being made, it might not be a good thing. We have this default uh, belief as a society that more is always better. Yes. And yes, it's yes. not necessarily the case, particularly, particularly if you find yourself in a field where you can make a lot of money. You, you need to really stay grounded. And that's that whole uh, living rich. You really have to work on your living well, because if you're going to impact people downstream, down that generational flow of your family it'll be the living well that's sticky mm. and the living rich is going to be what's causing all the different problems down down the road so you have to choose your intent now related to that let's talk about baselines whatever however i choose to live my life in front of my children becomes their baseline and if my children Huge. are competitive, which, uh, you know, we got a house of athletes here. They're, they're, com- they're growing up in a competitive nature with their swimming and their different events. Sure. If they're competitive, I want to leave them space in all areas of my life where they can go past me. So they can be successful on their own terms and, and feel that success. So what that and it's deeper than just kind of advice. Don't compete with your kids. It's it's how am I getting satisfied in my own life? How you know? And this this relates to coaching and consulting too. How how am I defining my success as a teacher, as a mentor? It's it's not the ability to compete with people. It's my ability to let people do better than they expected to to get that emotional attachment to work and success and that's a, something that's uh, again living well within a family system um, that i try so if i'm holding myself back with whatever type of car i'm driving or where i'm staying on, on a vacation or something it's with intent so it's not ability to pay it's thinking about well i'm Love probably going to i'm setting a baseline here for the kids and I, right. this is good enough right yeah, I lo- love that. I, I, our kids still look for the sale item going through the grocery store, and it just makes me smile. Like, okay, good, we did something right. Um, <laughs> some, something we see in our industry, health and wellness coaching, is a lot of the folks that listen to us is people are amazing at being a coach, but they struggle in creating a sustainable business. They, maybe they hesitate to charge enough. They just want to help the person. They feel bad about charging too much. But then they can't they can't keep their business going because they're not charging much. It, it, what what advice do you have for not necessarily for coaches specifically, but entrepreneurs, service providers, folks who get to choose what they're going to charge and continually default to the lesser amount? Can you speak to that at all a little bit? Yeah. Well, first off, um, I think about it. Actually, just I wrote something on this on, on this this week. Mm. Um, 
So your first step to creating a really great coaching and consulting business is getting to a sustainable lifestyle. So that, you know, it's that Ben Franklin uh, saying, you know, an empty, an empty sack can't stand up. Mm. In other words, so once you're sustainable, then you're able to really get into using your business to create the sort of life that you want. But you, you know, in uh, startups, tech startups, they talk about ramen profitability. You can once you got your <laughs> basics covered, you can you make better decisions. Yes. So. So you need to figure out, okay, what's it going? What's that going to take? What's it take to have my basics covered? So when I left private equity, I I used a portion of my balance sheet to buy a five-bedroom house in New Zealand. I gave myself the ability to rent out rooms and live for free. Very powerful uh, position to be in. I know I got my housing done. Next step. 12 clients, 250 bucks a month, 3,000 US a month. The Kiwi dollar was blown out back then. It was like 6,000 Kiwi a month. After taxes, say you got 5,000 to go with. All of a sudden, my groceries are covered. My insurance is covered. My transport is covered. So those first 12 clients, very valuable. Maybe I'm not too choosy about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And I'm trying to do a really good job at it. Because I don't, you know, I got to get my basics covered. I got to see if this can work. Now, I'm not charging 25 bucks a month because I want to get practice coaching. That's not it. If you want to, if you want to coach for free, well, maybe do 10 for 300 a month and have two people that you want to practice on for free. They really earn it. But you got to get paid within your business. You got to subject yourself to market forces. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself because if there, if you're, if somehow you're in a sector where you're not adding any value, you're going to find out. Now, some people talk about so you can work with different types of people. You can work with different types of coaching. You know, you, you don't, and you don't. That's the other thing. I don't get to choose what people are interested in. You know, I I've got <laughs> I've been writing for twenty years. And I don't get to choose what goes viral. I, I don't get to choose one hundred percent, brother. Yeah. A thousand hits in twenty four yeah. hours. Yeah. Now the the big difference now, you know, back in two thousand, we had some of the stats, you know, and, and part of that was I I wrote for, I mean, I wrote for an online triathlon magazine, and that let me see, you know, he he would tell me he's right. like, wow, you wrote this article about qualifying for Kona. It got 6,000 hits. It's the most popular thing I've ever had on my site. And I'm like, oh, there you go. Let's coach a dozen people trying to get to Kona. There, there's a business there. And I got feedback and I directed. So you, you got to figure out a way to get feedback. Now, it's way easier now. I, you know, a Twitter account and the left sidebar on my desktop is analytics. Flip it on. You've, you've got the ability to see what's connecting with the whole world. And from that from that feedback, you can dig deeper with articles 
and try and connect to people. And ultimately, as you as you build out your people that you're connecting with, you can cater these products to people. Coaching, so you, you have you have sort of different levels. You you can reach them with an online product. So let's say 50 to 75 bucks. Or you could do the one-on-one coaching. Or you know, ultimately you can get to these really tight family to family type relationships. Kind of it's all kind of getting closer and closer, and people are willing to pay more and more. So that's kind of it, that's overall strategy. But I would say to the coach that feels like they're not getting paid, you got to stop working for less than you need. You have to commit that from that so that the you know your minimum and you're not you're going to stop you're either going to write an article that promotes yourself i mean why work for free you know you need you're going to write an article and bang it out on twitter or your or your blog or wherever that's more valuable to you than working for free one on one so if i'm so when people that you know i i like twitter for that and facebook's good for that too these these platforms, if you're going to do something for free, make sure there's leverage in the ability of the world to read it. So you need a, you need a system to capture your best advice. So that's like a blog. And you, you need a, a system for getting that good advice to people who don't know who you are. that you have good advice. Right. And then there's going to be a small subset of those people who will pay you to tell them, what you've already told them, again, catered to their personal situation. And that's really what a coaching and consulting business is, is taking these concepts that people have already bought into. So they've filtered themselves into your life, and then you cater it for their personal situation. And that's kind of what you're, what you're selling in a, in a lot of these different channels. That would be how I would do it. So number one thing, Stop working for free. Stop working for less than you need to make your life work. Anybody that's demanding for you to work for less than that doesn't really have your best interests in mind. And then let the market guide you. Don't decide what you want to do. Let the market guide your actions. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Good. I'm looking at the clock and I've taken too much of your time already. Can we do one kind of collection of what haven't we covered? What's the advice that you're like, Brad, you didn't ask me about this or that, or, you know, what, what, what parting words do you want to leave with us that we haven't covered that you think might help people when it comes to this idea of money? Yeah. Pay yourself in time. It's the most powerful concept I've come across. Develop that out for us a little bit. You've talked about it, but expand it even further. So I would say most of us undervalue time. It's it's related compounding. It doesn't seem real to us. We don't understand how short our time is. We also fail to see the window of time. There are certain things when, you know, you can only work like a 20-year-old when you're 20, you, you, can, <laughs> you, you, know, you just can't do it when you're 53. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, when I'm 23, sitting at a desk in London, pulling all nighters five nights a week and just rolling with it and like visiting with friends as well. I mean, you, you think that's going to last forever. It's not. 
So same deal with doctors. You can only get through med school when you're young. You just can't do it when you're older. It wouldn't happen. So we don't see that. You don't see your window of time. So you, you pay yourself in time. So that's really what your game is financially. It's not to build a number. It's not to build a portfolio. It's to build time, to be able to choose what you do. And most importantly, to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm, mm. Because you can get rich and be caught, caught by your spending, caught by your mortgage payment. And you're going to find yourself in a situation where you feel uncomfortable, but you're going to have this big financial incentive or be in a situation where I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't do this for this individual. And you're caught. So that so this you know, the concept of time is is really good. I would I would say that's probably the the biggest one. The other thing is don't make money for adults. Don't make money for your adult children. Spend time with your children when they're children and they and give and equip them with the tools to take care of themselves. I I, I would say that is that is what it's all about within families. If if you lose sight of that, it can um you know, it's not your job. I tell that to people all the time. They feel so relieved. I'm like, why is it your job to take care of this adult? Totally. You know, you did, you know, whatever you did for them when they were kids, you know, you had your shot and now they're adults and, and they need to. So again, so what is your job when you're older? Don't become a liability. Be prudent. Mm. You know, we're all, you know, if we live long enough, we're all going to need help. Our bodies will fail. Our minds will fail. You know, that that's not your fault. You're going to need some help. But what you can do and what you can control is not becoming a liability in your own life. So that being prudent and not taking, not taking big risks, financially, certainly, late in life, not worth it for anybody. And, and that, you know, your children, <laughs> if you pull it off, your children aren't going to thank you because they're not going to be dealing with a big mess. But maybe their friends are, and and they'll say, "Well, you know, mom and dad are—they uh, took care of themselves, and they didn't, and they let me live my life the way I wanted to live it." And I think that's that's a nice legacy, regardless of how big your balance sheet is. So that that's something that I think is again underrated. So those would be two things that I think people should think about. Wise words, my friend. A great way to wrap us up. Thank you so much for your time today. I know how busy you are, and really appreciate it. I followed Gordo's writings for years, and I knew he'd be the perfect guest to bring some perspective to this world of money, finances, wealth, life, kids, business, all the components, and how they go together. We really appreciate him being our guest today. Thanks to you for tuning into the one podcast for health and wellness coaching, and thank you for sharing with others. We, we don't do any advertising, so you, you get all the credit for the growth we're seeing. Next week's episode features running legend Dick Beardsley, the central character in this incredible book titled Duel in the Sun. In addition to some amazing running stories, he shares his struggles with addiction that resulted in his arrest, the suicide of his son, and what he does each day to make life worth living through all the struggles. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions about your current or future coaching career. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or you can tap into additional health, wellness, and performance resources at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now it's time to be a catalyst. 
This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I will speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over the YouTube coaching channel.